Well, good morning, Genesis. So good to be with you today. My name is Paul. I'm the lead pastor here. And if you've got a Bible with you today, I invite you to turn to John chapter 12 uh, in the New Testament. Uh, we'll, we'll get there in just a few minutes. But as you're turning there, have you ever wondered how the phrase, in God we trust, ended up on our money? Uh, it's curious if you think about it. Um, it. It goes all the way back to Civil War times, 1861. M.R. Watkinson, that's a great name, a pastor, uh, wrote a letter, letter to the Secretary Treasury of the U.S. urging the recognition of the Almighty God in some form on our coins. And the Treasury agreed and added the words, in God we trust, to the two-cent coin. And if any of you have one of those in your pockets today, I'd love to see it afterwards. But the two-cent coin in 1864, but then it was imprinted on all silver and gold coins the following year. Now, fast forward to 1956. World War II had come to an end, but there was chaos and tension and turmoil all around the world, especially in places like Korea, and it was growing in Vietnam. The USA and Soviet Union were engaged in the Cold War, and the Soviet Union championed atheism as a foundational part of communism. And in an effort to oppose that, President Dwight Eisenhower led the way for the USA to adopt the phrase, in God we trust, as our national motto. And from there, Congress passed a bill to add the phrase to all U.S. currency beginning in 1957. Now, for those of us who follow Jesus Christ, for those of us who would say that we're Christians, we find a sense of comfort in seeing those words, in God we trust, on our money. But it begs the question, do you live like it? Do we live like it? I mean, in every aspect of our lives, like is our trust really in God whose name is on our money, or is it in the money that we've put God's name on? Because there's a difference, right? I mean, if we're just being honest, if we're being real, like, because I don't know if you've noticed, I'm sure you have, but we live in a world today that screams more, more, more. It's always about more. Like more is the answer to everything. Like more is the answer to my problems. Uh, the more we have, the better life will be. Uh, more money means more fun. More money means more power and security and control. More money means more stuff. And if we have more stuff, well, who certainly wouldn't enjoy something like that? But I don't know if you've noticed or not, this desire for more has actually created a huge problem in our world, in our country. Like when you consider that we have more debt nationally than we've ever had before, the current national debt is around $33 trillion. Like that's out of control. It's irresponsible and, and terrifying, pretty terrifying when you stop to think about it. But it's not just a national global problem. Like it's, it's our problem too. It's my problem. It's your problem, a problem for so many of us. It's our, it's our out of control debt. It's our out of control spending. We live paycheck to paycheck, just trying to keep up, hoping to get ahead, terrified really at the thought that there'll never be enough. And we're not content. We're always seeking more. And, and well, this all out pursuit for more, what's it getting us? Are we happier? Are we more satisfied? Do we trust God more because of it? Like, sadly, the opposite appears to be true. Like, our relentless, all-out pursuit of more hasn't produced things like satisfaction and more contentment in people. No, instead, it's more stress. 
People are more stressed than they've ever been before. It's, it's more discontentment. It's more anxiety than ever before. The bottom line is that we have a problem. And many of us, I, I, I've shared in this problem a contentment problem, certainly a satisfaction problem, a faith problem, and it appears to be impacting most of us in some shape or form or another, Christians included. But there is good news. The good news is this. It doesn't have to be that way. Like God has a better plan for you and me, but it's up to you and me to decide whether we believe it's worth it. Do we really trust him? Do we really believe that he has a better plan for our lives and the type of faith and trust we put in something like money? Today, we're kicking off a brand new series here. It's a series called Less is More for the next four weeks. We're going to look to the Bible to better understand what God has to say about these things, to say about things like money and generosity and what we put our trust in. And spoiler alert, I just want you to know that the answer to this isn't having or making more money, but rest assured, it isn't about having less money in your lives either. No, the bottom line is this, that if we're going to be sent people, if we're going to follow Jesus fully and completely, surrender to him in this world, like a sent life for Jesus means less of me and more of him. It's less of me and more of him in all things, in everything. It's more of Jesus in every aspect of our lives. And just to break the ice in the room, I realize that whenever we talk about something like money or generosity in church, people get really, really nervous. Like you've got some people around you right now who are breaking out in hives or a really cold sweat or something like that. And I just want you to know that it's going to be okay. All right. You don't need to check out for the next five weeks or anything like that. But I also want to say we make no apologies either for talking about something like this in church. I mean, this conversation of money and finances and resources and what we put our faith and trust in, like, it's an important one. This is really important. Like, this is one that we have to get right because when you think about it, like, like why talk about money in church? Well, we talk about money in church because we talk about it all the time. People do, all of us. We talk about money every day in our lives. We, we think about it. We manage it. You have to deal with it, whether it be in your work or, or, or uh, you know, in your, in your home, in your family. We, you argue about it. We argue about it with our spouse over it. We, uh, decisions are made and avoided because of money. Like, if money, though, is, if it's such a big deal in our lives and in this world, like, why? Why wouldn't we talk about it in a setting like this, especially when we know that it's also important to God? Because if you didn't realize this, God, or, or Jesus for that matter, talks about money in the Bible some, something around 2,000 times. Did you know that? I mean, Jesus talked about money and possessions more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. And why? Well, because he knew that in most cases that money would be his greatest competition for your heart and for mine. He knew how easily any of us can be pulled into this trap, this lure of more money and resources. I mean, just as two examples, listen to these two direct statements from Jesus. They both come out of the Gospels. The first here in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, Jesus said this, don't store up treasures for yourself here on earth. Now, was Jesus against saving? No, he wasn't against saving. He wasn't against being a good steward of your resources. He talked about that. But in this case, he said, hey, make sure that your emphasis in this 
this world isn't about what you can accumulate because guess what? Moths can eat it, rust can destroy it, thieves can break in and steal. But instead, here's the better plan that he has for us. Store your treasures in heaven. Basically, make sure your aim, your intent is every part of your life fully surrendered to God in all things because the moths and the rust can't destroy it. Thieves won't break in and steal that. And then he gets to the very heart of the matter. He says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. I heard one, someone once say, if, if you really want to know your aim, your emphasis, or your priorities when it comes to your money, just look at your register. Look at the record. Look at the bank report. It'll say something about our intent, about our desire. Jesus said this in Luke 12, 15 about money and the emphasis we put on it. He said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. See, Jesus knows. He knew what money and the desire for more can do in our lives and how that's going to impact our faith. And he knew, again, that money would be his greatest competition for my heart and for your heart. And he knows how devastating greed is and what it's capable capable of. But here's the good news. Here's the Jesus way. Like he's, he's crazy about you and me. And he wants to provide leadership and guidance to every aspect of our lives, every part of your life, your faith, my faith, whatever you're going through this morning, including how you think about and manage money. And so that's why we say that when it comes to money, God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. Here at Genesis, this is the same and true for me and our church. This isn't about the church getting more of your money either. This is about God getting full control of every part of our lives, your life and mine. It's less of me and more of Jesus. And that's what it means to be sent Christians. And that's a little bit of what we're gonna talk about these next few weeks together. And so John chapter 12 today, John was a disciple of Jesus. He was uh, very close to Jesus. In fact, the account that we're gonna read this morning, he was likely there and witnessed this firsthand. And he has provided us this written record uh, of these and similar accounts. But just to give you some context, John 11, one chapter four, ends with Lazarus, you've heard his name before, walking out of the tomb alive, Within days, Jesus is back in Bethany. Bethany was like a, a village, a small suburb just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is back there for a meal with Lazarus, who was once dead, Mary and Martha, his sisters and others. And scholars believe that this meal was served on a Saturday, with Sunday the next day being the day we know as Palm Sunday. That means that Easter is one week away when we read these words. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Here's what John writes. Six days before the the Passover. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And so John records that this dinner was given in the honor of Jesus. Why does Jesus get a special dinner? You raise somebody from the dead, they owe you dinner, right? And it better be a really good one, and that's what this is. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus' disciples were there with them. And so likely John... And notice that John says in his word that they were reclining at the table. And that's because they were eating in what's called a triclinium style as shown here. Now, when we think of the Last Supper, right, we think of da Vinci's painting and all of the disciples sitting at a really long table. That's not how they ate during this time span. They would instead have eaten in this triclinium style. The Last Supper and this meal here included in John chapter 12 
12, where they would lean up against the table on their left elbow so that they could eat with their right hand, and then their feet would extend away from the table. And it's into this scene then that Mary walks. Now, this isn't Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the sister of Martha. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. She's a friend of Jesus. Verse 3, John writes, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Men, Christmas is coming which means you need to start thinking about the gift that you're going to buy for that special someone in your life. If you're thinking of perfume, let me just remind you that a name like J'adore or Chanel's got a nice ring to it. Nard doesn't do the same thing, right? And so choose wisely, but that's all that Mary had. Nard was this very very valuable perfume. She, she walks in, she kneels on the ground, she pours this perfume on Jesus' feet, and according to the disciple John, did you catch this? the fragrance filled the room. I just want you to imagine what was going through Jesus' mind as he looks over his shoulder at what's happening. Imagine the gasps, uh, the stares from others around the table. For starters, women would never let down their hair in public, and so there's that. And then the shock when you consider the value of the perfume. And let's just say that caught at least one person's attention. Verse 4, John writes, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, there's a familiar name, who was later to betray him, objected. He said, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Again, it was worth a year's wages. That's a lot of money. Some translations say 300 denarii or 300 days Wages. Just to put that into a little bit of perspective, the average income per working person in Hamilton County is somewhere in the ballpark of $47,000. So from Judah's perspective, again, that's a lot of money in perfume and certainly perfume poured out on the feet of Jesus. Judas is running the numbers, right? He's a math guy. He's thinking this through, calculating what could be, not Mary though. She's not thinking about what she's losing. She's thinking about her gift and most importantly, who the gift is going to, but not Judas. Again, the perfume, well, the perfume you could say is not the only fragrance that filled the room. Greed filled the room too. Verse 6, he, that's Judas, did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so greed had a hold of Judas' heart. He wasn't concerned, as John points out, about the poor. He was thinking about himself and what he could gain, what had been lost. For Judas, more was never enough. But Judas isn't going to spoil this special moment because as much as greed is evident in this story and in Judas' life, something stronger emerges through Mary and her gift. It's something that my friend Pastor Gary Johnson calls the aroma of gratitude. And this nard, this is pretty cool. John is going to give us a clue to something so significant and so powerful. Like there's more going on here basically than what we realize. Because when someone died, 
his or her body was eventually anointed with spices and perfumes and placed in a tomb. And when the tomb was later opened so that the body could be buried, perfumes like nard were used to soften the smell. And so do you see what's happening here? Jesus is going to be dead in less than a week. And instead of waiting until his death, Mary poured out her extravagant gift on Jesus' feet as an act of worship, as an act of gratitude for what he had done and what he was still going to do. One scholar pointed out, what do we think that nard was waiting for? Potentially to be used on Lazarus' body. But he's not dead. Jesus had raised him back to life. And Mary could think of nothing better to do now than to pour out this gift on the feet of Jesus as an act of worship, as an act of gratitude for bringing people back to life. And how did she get to this place? Well, Jesus was changing her. He was changing her heart and her perspective. Like the more time she spent with him, the more she was drawn to him. He saved her brother and brought him back to life. And the closer she got to, then, to him then, the more she wanted to be like Jesus. See, Mary realized, she was realizing and acting out on what it means to live a sent life. Less of Mary, more of Jesus in all things. How was she able to make such an extravagant gift and sacrifice then? Gratitude. Deep gratitude for the powerful, miraculous work of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this this morning. When it comes to your life, you think about you right now, I think about me, like is your life consumed by greed or do you find yourself growing more and more each day in gratitude? Gratitude for Jesus. Like, are, are we like Judas on the one hand, so preoccupied with other things, preoccupied with things like money and possessions and control and accumulating and taking care of ourselves and, and this greed? Or are we like Mary? Are we becoming like Mary, so incredibly grateful for what Jesus has done and accomplished for us through his life and through his death on the cross? Mary gave from a position of gratitude. And here's what I believe. This is what I think. This is what I believe to be true of our church and the last 15 years that God has blessed and privileged me with to be here with you. Like, I don't think anyone here today, I don't think you want your life to be marked or known for greed. Who does, right? No one does. Like, certainly a life where we put more faith in anything else, something like money, more faith in that than we do in Jesus Christ. And so how do we make sure? How do we keep growing? How do we keep trusting? How do we make sure that things like greed and money and the possession of them, the false security of acquiring more, like how do we make sure that something like that, anything like that doesn't rule our lives? How do we become like Mary? so grateful for what Jesus has done and is willing to do in our lives. Like, how do we live and act more like her? Mary gave as an act of worship. Gratitude was behind her gift. And Jesus took notice. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew's account of the story. Matthew 26, verse 13. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. That's a pretty good prediction. 2,000 years later, 
Her story is inspiring, but let's be honest, it's also a little overwhelming in that she gave such a valuable gift. And so let's not let the monetary value of the gift in any way distract us what I believe is the greater lesson of the story. Because I think the most important lesson behind the story, for today at least, is that Mary willingly gave. And gratitude for Jesus is what drove it. And in the same manner, one of the best ways that I've learned and that I've seen in many of you to break the cycle of greed in our lives and to grow in this area of surrender and gratitude for Jesus is to follow Mary's example and to practice the generosity that we see going on in her life. And so here's what we're going to do. And today's a bit of an introductory, but over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about giving and generosity in some really practical ways. And the challenge is this. The challenge is that for those of you that call Genesis your home or your church, the challenge is that we'd all be willing, prayerfully consider, open up our lives to the possibility of taking a step with God in this area of, of giving and, and generosity. And so that means if Genesis isn't your church, you get a pass, right? You just get to listen in and watch the rest of us squirm, you know, over the next four weeks, all right? But this is for those of us, again, who call this family because we believe that one of the best ways to grow in this to grow in this area of gratitude is through our gifts and through our giving. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our, our heart tends to follow the direction of our gifts and our giving. And so we've used an illustration here in the past. Some of you will remember this. It's been a little bit of time, but I found this to be just a helpful illustration when it comes to this idea of giving and generosity because it is a journey. It's a process. It's hard to just jump in, like jumping into a cold swimming pool, you know, early in the morning, that there are steps to our growth. There are steps in all things, you know, in everything that we do in these areas of growth. And so what does growing, what does this generosity journey look like for us. And so we've identified four steps that we're going to talk about these next weeks. And today I'm going to focus a little bit on what it means to be a, a first-time giver, uh, what it means to be a consistent giver, what it means to be an intentional giver, and what it means to be a surrendered giver. Next week, Steve Wallen's coming back to the stage. He's going to share with us next Sunday, and so you're going to get a chance to hear him preach, and he's going to talk about what it means to be a consistent giver, and then I'll finish up the other two in the weeks after. But today, I want to just spend a few more minutes focusing with you on this first step, and arguably, I'll say the most important step on this ladder, and that's what we call and what it means to become a first-time giver. And a first-time giver is just this. It's very practical. It's very basic. But it's to be someone who has never given, maybe never given in your life before, certainly to a place like Genesis Church. I mean, maybe you tried one time a really long time ago, but it's been forever since you've done it. But to be a first-time giver means to decide that you're going to give a monetary gift and then do it. That you make a decision in your heart that I'm going to give a financial gift and that you follow through and that you do it. And why do you do it? The goal would be, the aim would be that it's an act of worship, it's an act of gratitude just like Mary. And I'll just say this, this gift isn't dependent on what you make. Uh, you're not worried about what someone else gives and your gift in light of that. In fact, it really has nothing to do with the dollar amount whatsoever. It's between you and the Lord. This is a prayerful decision. Again, an act of gratitude 
And this gift, what it does is it's just beginning to demonstrate your greater and growing and desirable trust in him. It's about getting our hearts moving in the right direction. Let me, let me illustrate. My, my wife, Jenny, is a nurse. When we were first married, uh, she worked the third shift at the hospital uh, in Anderson, working overnight, working in the ER, which meant she had a lot of stories, a lot of good stories. Uh, But I'll remember this one time she had come home. She hadn't been doing it very long, and she described to me the first time she witnessed what is called a a cardioversion, all right? And I'm a little bit out of my league here in describing this, but they had a patient come into the ER whose heart uh, was in arrhythmia, beating very, very fast, and they couldn't normalize. And so the doctor, uh, using medicine and electrical shock, that literally the heart, the, the medicine made the heart stop and then restart at a normal, normal rhythm. It's pretty fascinating when you think about it. It was fat, it's fascinating for her to witness that. It was fascinating to, to hear about that. Here's the thing. Giving has the potential to do something very special and powerful in our hearts and with our faith. Like generosity and giving is about getting our heart beating and moving in the right direction. Like our, what, we, what we want, what we desire is that our faith isn't going to be focused on what I can gain or accumulate or acquire in this world, but instead my faith is focused on Jesus. Christ. I am making him my aim, and so we give from a place of gratitude, trusting him for all, worshiping him for everything that he's done for us. And so becoming a first-time giver is how many of us get started in this journey. I've heard some other people describe this journey, this first step, like becoming a rookie giver. What's what's a rookie? A rookie, right, is a a first time through, first year in the league, first time with a team. A, A rookie giver then is brand new to giving, but don't get me wrong, I realize that taking this first step, if you've never given before, making a decision that I trust this church, I trust its leaders, I'm willing to to give from my own resources, I I realize how challenging that can be, how, how great a step of faith that can be. And how do I know that? Because it's part of my story. Like I remember uh, when Jenny and I first became givers 20 plus years ago. Now the situation is a little different because we didn't give directly to a church, but, uh, but I think you'll get the point of this story. I was, well, while Jenny was working in the ER in Anderson, I was working as an admissions counselor at Anderson University. And Jenny and I got to know this student uh, at the time, a young woman from Baltimore who wasn't able to go home for Thanksgiving. She couldn't afford uh, the travel. And I remember thinking to myself, this is so true, I just remember thinking, Somebody should do something about this. And I remember thinking, like, the school should provide resources, you know, so that she can get home for Thanksgiving, or somebody ought to step in and do something for her. And I'm not kidding when I say this. There was a moment, and I do believe that it was from the Holy Spirit, where it was just this light bulb moment of, like, well, why can't you? And Jenny and I made a decision that day to provide the money, to buy the plane ticket. It was so much fun to tell her. Uh, I'm pretty sure we took her to the airport and, and picked her up from the airport when she, she came back. And, but again, it started with this thought of like, why not us? Like, why, why can't we, we do this? And, and it was so much fun to be a part of that, but it was hard too. We didn't have a lot of money. It was hard to make that decision, but Again, God started something in our lives through that. I I mean that. Uh, Our generosity journey on this ladder, I'll tell you more about our story in the coming weeks, but 
of what it means to see everything that you have is a gift from the Lord. We're just managers. We're just managing the resources. But to be a part of his work and that, 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 that new work of giving and generosity in our lives has been so special. It's been so powerful for our faith and our trust in the Lord. And I know that's the case for many of you because you've shared your stories with me and you've seen the power of this work in your life. If, if you're not giving to Genesis, or if there's another church that you call your home church and you're not giving there, if it's been a really, really long time, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider getting started on this ladder, on this journey with us, and become a first-time giver. Make a decision to give something, and then do it and follow through, and maybe you do that in the next few weeks, or you do that before the end of the year. And there are several ways that you can do that here at Genesis. You hear us talk about this every week you can give online there are several electronic options to do that it's safe it's secure if you've got questions about how that works see me I can put you in touch with people that are a lot uh, more uh, used to how all of that works if you if you just have some very specific uh, questions about the processes um, I'll also say that you can use the giving envelopes in, in the rooms that are around the are in the seats around the room and, and that's what the giving boxes are for and you can put your cash gift in there you can put your name and contact information on there so we can send you a record at the end of the year so you can keep track of that for, for tax purposes. This is just kind of fun. Uh, we've got some volunteers that come in and help with a lot of these financial processes. They're very trusted and very experienced in this. And uh, one of the women that was working on this the other day brought me an envelope. She said, hey, you got to see this. This showed up in the offering. Uh, Maggie Nevins, she's third grade, nine years old. Uh, she filled out this envelope and her 25 cent gift was tucked in there. I reached out to her parents to ask permission to share this. I said, hey, what'd you tell her? And like, we had nothing to do with it. I think they have a lot to do with it. They're watching, you know, their daughter's watching them and how they live their lives. But, you know, how, how special, how sweet is this uh, of somebody in our church that, you know, God's even at a young age already doing something in their heart. You know, young people here today, students here today, I, I tell you one of the best pieces of advice I can give you next to surrendering your life to the Lord is to get started in this generosity journey. It'll change the trajectory of your life right, to learn how to be generous and to trust the Lord through your giving even right now. If you're not ready, I just ask you, would you be willing to pray about this? Start praying about, you know, what it would mean to become a first-time giver. Uh, target the Christmas offering, because in December, we're going to spend four weeks talking about our Christmas offering. We take a special offering every December. We give it all away uh, to ministry partners that we support. We've also got another special emphasis we'll tell you about in a few weeks. Uh, maybe that would be your first-time gift this year, to give to that. We celebrate the numbers, a lot of what we're able to give as a church family. One of the things that I'd love to celebrate this year is all of the people and the homes that participate. Imagine what we could do and accomplish together. And remember, this is not about Genesis getting more of your money. This is about what God has for you and me. And keep this in mind, though, too. While your gift has the potential to do something very special and powerful in your life, it also has the potential of changing somebody else's. This is a very generous church. You're surrounded by generous people right now. We give to a lot of ministries locally and around the world. We couldn't do any of it without your faithful giving and support. We, we want this church to be less about us and more about Jesus. 
And that's what Jesus is after too. He doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you and for me and for Genesis Church. And so let's be people. Let's be people that are not ruled by greed or this false hope in more things. Instead, we want more of Jesus Christ. And giving can get our heart and faith moving in the right direction. I'll close with this. Last week, was the official wrap to our year-long study through the New Testament book of Acts. And if you followed along with us, if you read on your own, you watch the Holy Spirit move in some really powerful ways through those first followers of Jesus. And if you remember way back uh, to February in Acts chapter 2, we learned and read about how the people in the first church practice giving and generosity in some pretty radical ways. Check this out. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 44. This is the first church. It says, and all the believers met together in one place, kind of like we're doing this morning, shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They also met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and they were known for their generosity. And what got into them? Jesus did. They saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes, many of them. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's presence in their own hearts. And somewhere along the way, so many of them prayed and believed, we want to be fully surrendered to Jesus in all things. And they gave, and they gave, and God changed their lives. And he also changed the world. And he did it through this church. Genesis, let's break the cycle of greed and trust in anything other than Jesus Christ. Less greed, more gratitude, less of you and me more of Jesus Christ in all things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our faith and hope and trust is in you. That's our, our prayer and our desire today. More of Jesus and less of me. More of Jesus and less of us, Lord. We want you to lead and reign in our lives and in our homes so that you can lead and reign in our church family. And so speak to our hearts today. Move in us. You know every life. You know every story. You know our doubts. You know our questions. You know our fears. And you love us. And you offer to lead us. Your way is good. It's right. And it's better. Give us the faith to trust you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.